There's moments that we come upon that mark a period of time that give us no other choice than to look back and remember. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Terry Summers Podcast. Today marks a day... um, a year ago that a handful of us initially um, friends of Brian Argo got a message that he was um, entering into ICU with COVID and that was the beginning of a story that is still being told And as I even think about this date, I have a muscle memory. Perhaps it's the weather in Arizona. Perhaps it's just memories of immediately going into prayer, recalling the entries into Caring Bridge by his wife, Karen, that gave us details that we would know how to pray and not necessarily have to speak to her directly. What a wonderful source that has been. So I don't mean to sound somber, though it was a somber time. Because really this story is so full of hope. Brian made it through COVID. Though there were never any signs that he would in the physical realm. I am so honored that when Brian and Karen were ready to tell their story and thinking that the year anniversary might be a good date, they came to me and wanted to at least begin to try and tell it on my podcast. There is so much to this story. The details and the weaving of really the trials that they went through and from day to day, hour to hour, sometimes minute to minute. And there's absolutely no way for us to capture all of that in a podcast, but we are sure going to try. This will have multiple parts to it because there's so much to say, but it is worthy of hearing. And I just can't wait for you to meet the gal that rode out one heck of a wave that she didn't see coming. Karen Argo made her way into my heart in a powerful way. And I can't wait for you to spend some time with her. Well, Karen Argo is with me. We're going to spend some time with her. And I confess to her that I have a little bit of butterflies in my stomach, not because I'm speaking to her because she's lovely. Um, I have no fear. Um, Rarely do I have any fear speaking, but because I feel the weight of this date and interview, Karen, let me, let me just refresh. I know I've said some things about it, but 
I, um, Karen is married to a longtime friend of mine from my junior high, high school days that we grew up and were sort of brought up in church together in those um, years. But Karen, what were you doing, <laughs> Ishi, a year ago today? Who, what, who, what was getting ready to happen that you had no idea where it was going to go? But really, can you think back what you were doing a year ago? I can, and but I have to back it up a couple days because, sure. um, as you know, I'm a flight attendant, and my whole family had had COVID the week prior, and I was starting to feel better, and so I decided to go on my trip. Um, my two daughters were doing a little better. I thought Brian was okay enough for me to leave. I just had no fear of, of this sickness. So I went on my trip and the third day of it, uh, I got a call and, and that Brian was in the ER and he had been there for two days and they just couldn't get his oxygen levels to stay up. And he said, they're going to keep me another night. So I'm trying to rush home. I was in St. Louis. And of course, there's a big storm there. So I can't get home. I finally come home around midnight. He usually takes me and picks me up. So I had to Uber home. I got home really late. My kids weren't home. I didn't know where Brian was because he said they might be taking me to the hospital. And someone had picked up my kids and I, I just didn't know where he was. He wasn't answering his phone. In the morning, I get a call from him finally that says, and this is the morning of the 30th, August 30th, 2021. I'm at the urgent care and they just found a hospital bed for me and they're going to be taking me to the hospital right now. One of my daughters, my 14 year old daughter was home with me that morning and we ran to the car and probably broke every speed limit record there was rushing over there and we got there just in time to see them wheeling him out of the urgent care in the back of the building into an ambulance and we were yelling at him like we love you we love you you're gonna be okay i'm 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 beside myself. And then I don't see him again for five weeks after that. And <laughs> that was my day a year ago. That was my morning. And, and that, so this is being released, um, this podcast. We're just a couple days away. So today's the 28th. That was, what was that day? Date? That's the day I was on my trip. That was the day he... 28, 20. Yeah. He went into urgent care that day. Really? Mm -hmm. And so we thought that they would just put him on oxygen. He would come home, but that just, it never happened. This was the second time he was in urgent care. So he had been there a week earlier. So when the, so, um, um, let me just say that this is a, this is a challenging, I can see, uh, I can see the emotion on you and I'm emotional too, because it was quite, we uh, talk about kind of being called to your knees. If there are listeners that aren't uh, praying people, you know, I, I, I get that, you know, we all come from different backgrounds, but for me, 
um, it was like an immediate, oh my goodness, a little bit of that, but then it turned into, oh my goodness. And then the story just spiraled out of control. And I know this is hard for you to share it, Karen, and just take your time. I just, um, I just know it's such a powerful story. I just want you to have the most comfortable way of, of, of sharing it. So when he got to the hospital, uh, from urgent care, what happened next? He was, he was texting me. He texted me, I think two times. And the third time was just a series of letters. And I texted back, what does that mean? What are you saying? And then it was just radio silence, just gone. And what was happening is that they were, they were trying to save him, but he was unconscious. (gasps) I didn't know that. Levels went very, very low. And the next night I was, I was really, really trying to keep him off the ventilator. And as you know, you can't be there. So you're, everything is over the phone. You have no face. You barely have a voice. I, I, I didn't speak to a doctor um, maybe three times in the nine, in the three months that he was there. So when I, I'm going to ask you to reiterate the three months because I, um, I, 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 in case that has not been mentioned before this turned into, you didn't get to see him for five of those three months. Right. And then he was there for 90 days for 90 days. He was on the ventilator. So that night the doctor did call me about 11 o'clock the next night and said, if we don't put him on a ventilator, he will die tonight. So I said, okay. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't able to make his own decisions. So it was all on my shoulders. And I had been told by so many people, don't let him put him on the ventilator. Once he's on the ventilator, he's dead. And so at that time, I thought, am I killing my husband or am I saving his life? I don't know what to do. And you mentioned prayer. There is nothing like a crisis of this magnitude to drive you to prayer, even if you're not somebody that prays, because you have no hope. You have no hope. You're, you're helpless. You can't be there. You can't speak to anyone. You cannot control anything. And all of a sudden, your only hope is to go to prayer. That's it. Um, I do. I do want to say something ab- about you. So, like, I knew you. Um, we had met. Uh, Brian uh, lived in Arizona before I did, and so there was contact. And you guys were super sweet when I when Jim passed away. I just have vivid memories, but I hadn't spent much time around you. And I, and you started writing in the caring bridge. I don't know if folks that are listening understand what that is, but just long and short, it's a place where people um, can, can go to keep masses, some greater masses than others uh, informed about the journey. And so it was like, we, and I'm meaning the, we that love Brian and you, we waited for that to come out because you were so faithful and you were such a beautiful writer and communicator under this 
wait, but I, I have chill bumps right now, but I remember feeling, I don't like, you know, and this is so me too, like to go outside of the rules. I thought, I don't want to talk to her on this. I'm going to message her. And so then I started and I, I, I profusely said, you don't have to answer anything I'm saying, but I'm just writing to you. And I would message you at night, but girl, I don't know how you did it when you were, can you explain how bleak those five weeks were for you? I can. It was, and it was funny because you would message me in the middle of the night and I would be up and because I wasn't sleeping and it was actually really comforting to know that you were there. It was like somebody's out there. They're with me right now in the middle of the night and this darkness they're with me. I had a lot of people with me. I was very, very blessed, but uh, the first, I was just reading over my first journal entries because you forget it was a year ago. So I remember the trauma, but I don't remember all of the details. And I just went back um, today, this morning, and I was reading <laughs> the beginning. And that first 15 days, it, it was the darkest of my life. Mm-hmm. And that sounds so dramatic, but if you... We don't even have time to go into Brian's and my story, but Brian is my person. He is like, if there was another half of me, he is it. I always said to him, I don't work without you, even before all this, because he just, the the relationship that we have was such a gift to us later in our life. And he he was just my person, my one person that I felt like I could not survive without. And he, he was expected to die, Terry. He, they gave me no hope. Right. And on the third day after he was intubated, I was just reading, they gave me two choices. You can go, you can have him on the ECMO machine, which is a life-saving procedure or we can try to get a roto bed, which is a bed that flips the patient over on their stomach. They call it prone mm-hmm. so that the lungs expand mm-hmm. because he could get no air in his lungs. He had also pneumonia. So in the x-rays, his lungs were completely white and white means there's no room for air. Right. You would, if you would have an x-ray of your lungs, you would have pockets of black and that's where the air can go in and it can expand the lungs. Brian's lungs immediately were damaged. I I don't even know how it can happen so quickly, but he had so much scar tissue in there and scar tissue does not expand. So they could not get any air in there and they were trying to pump pressure and they were worried about the lungs collapsing and I could only talk to them twice a day. I would call in the morning, I would call in the evening at the shift changes, seven to seven. And they were just, they were so careful not to give me hope. They were so careful every time, every day it was Karen. Brian is, I don't know what to tell you. Brian is the sickest patient we have. Brian is the wow. sickest patient in this ICU. I mean, we're How trying- How many to- did they have at the time? Do you know? Nine. Nine in his pod. They had different pods, but they, at that time, COVID was so rampant that they had taken over different areas of the hospital and just made it COVID. So anytime they went into his room, they had to like suit up in the whole hazmat mm-hmm. air, air compressor on their face thing. And so 
it was very hard to take care of him. And it, he was their sickest patient. And they gave me no hope. At one point he said, I said, what, what do you think his chances are? And they said 5% at the best. Oh, Karen. I know. And I just, I couldn't believe it because I tend to be a person that's like, everything's going to be fine. Right. Everything's going to be okay. And it, it wasn't okay. As much as I tried to find where it was going to be okay, it wasn't okay. There was nothing that was okay. I lived and died by the numbers they gave me every day. His blood gas numbers, his oxygen levels, his pH numbers, everything. I kept him in a journal and I would just refer back to them like, like a crazy lady. <laughs> like I just was like living by these numbers and you can't control anything. You can't be there. I was asking for different medications and different nutrients and they wouldn't give it to him to him because they had a protocol and that was so frustrating to me and then I had other people coming in saying you've got to get this for him and you've got to get him to do this and you've got to insist on this and there's no insisting that right. there is no insisting because if I recall you had some uh I mean you do have a wonderful pool of pre uh, friends and there were people yes. who knew people and you did you were even able to get up to the uppity ups and make yes. some requests and it really were there were there any positive results of that yes uh, or, yeah we were able to get an attorney to let me go in to see him one hour this was probably day 17 or 18 and we got permission for me to come in there for one hour. So <laughs> that was just the craziest hour. I had all this planned of what I was going to do. He couldn't speak because he was ventilated. They were bringing him out of his coma for that one hour so that I could see him, speak to him. They made me do the whole hazmat suit and everything. So he, I, I'm sure he did not recognize me. Um, when I first came in there, he was just staring off into the ceiling. It, it was the most terrifying yeah. sight I've ever seen. He had the ventilator taped to his face. He had the feeding tube in his belly and his eyes were just glassy and he was just staring up into space, like not making any kind of contact. And when I touched his arm and I said, Brian, it's Karen. He just slowly moved his head over to the side to look at me. And then he, he just looked back at the ceiling. It was, oh. It was, he was very comatose, I guess. And I had brought with me all these letters from people and cards that, that I wanted to read to him to encourage him. But he was just so out of it that I, I he just, he wrote on a, a whiteboard that he was some kind of word. It looked like sacred. And I was like, what is, what does he mean? Cause I had brought a whiteboard with me. When was this? Do you recall how far into it? This was about the third week. Okay. Um, and he was trying to tell me he was scared. Oh, Karen. Yeah. But I couldn't get it for the longest time. And then I had all these crazy thoughts in my head. Like, are you scared because you know you're going to die? Are you scared because like, what is something bad happening to you here that I need to know about? Like, what are you scared? And he couldn't articulate it. He, he just couldn't. So I had to leave there knowing that my husband was on death's door. He was terrified of something. And I just had to leave. 
they just made me leave. And I didn't see him again for another couple of weeks when they took him off isolation. So I did get to speak to him one other time. And this is such a, a significant time because he was in that coma. And his nurse said to me one night, do you want to talk to him? And I said, yes. He's like, you won't be able to talk back to you, but you, I will take an iPad in there and I will put it by his ear oh, and you and the girls can talk to him. And so I had to wait while he got all in his suit and he went in there and Brian just looked, this is before I saw him. He was just completely out um, in, a, in a coma. The ventilator was breathing for him. And I was screaming at him to not give up. Brian, don't you dare give up. Don't you give up. Don't you die, Brian. I don't work without you. you we need you. You keep fighting. You keep fighting, honey. And um, I said to Stephen, the nurse, after a while, the girls talked to him. And I said, Stephen, it, it was such an empty feeling because he didn't move. He didn't respond. You know, I felt like I was just talking to a wall. And I said, Stephen, do you think he heard me? Can he hear me? And he said, Karen, he has tears running down his eyes. Oh, Karen. He heard Karen. you. Oh, girl. He couldn't respond, he couldn't move, but he heard my voice and he, he cried. You know, I just think of the fight that you had to, you know, because not only were you fighting for him and telling him, don't give up, you have these two girls and who knew what was ever going really through their minds. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what was that like for you? Oh, that continues to be one of my biggest regrets in all of this. Um, I, I did not do a good job of parenting them through my pain. I was in a mode where I was going to take over the situation. I was going to control what I could. I was going to fight for him. And in the meantime, my daughter's who were teenagers, 14 and 15, they didn't know what to do with all of this. They didn't, how can, a, how can an adolescent process something like this? They're seeing their mom, they're seeing their mom fall apart on a daily basis. They don't know what happened to their dad. Like he was here and then he was gone. And I, I can't imagine what a, teenage brain would be thinking at that time but they probably needed a lot more compassion from me um, than I gave them and I think they're still suffering because of that mm. uh, we had a lot of women around us that time at that time which was wonderful and they really did fill in a lot of the gaps for me when I just had no energy to do it myself um, but I really feel like I should have talked to my daughters more. I should have asked them how they're doing. I should have, um, I should have asked them what they needed from me. I should have spent some more time with them and not had it been all about dad, but it was all about him. Yeah. For the 
those times. And I, I just was in a panicked mode thinking, how can I lose, how can I lose him? Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen to us? And I, I also went into um, survival mode, like, okay, okay, this is going to be me and the girls. Mom, this is what we're going to do. I had my plans. I had my ducks in a row. I am not one to not have a plan. And this was not in the plan, but I was like, okay, Brian's going to die. I really believed in my heart. He's going to die. I was going to ask, did you get to a place where you did think Mm -hmm. as hopeful of a person or as everything's going to be okay? Like you said of yourself, was there a time when you had sort of said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm believing that he is not going to make it. I did believe that. I did believe that. And I ended up on the floor in a fetal position, just crying my eyes out because I, at that moment I had, I just talked to the nurses and there was just no hope. There was no hope for them. There was no hope for me. At that moment, I grieved his death. Like he was already gone, which is a terrible thing. It's, it's terrible. I, I just can look back and see so many errors in my ways, but I, I felt like he was gone. And my poor daughters had to see that. And they called a friend to come help me because they didn't know what to do. Oh, wow, girl. And, oh, Terry, I just, I regret that so much. I regret it so much. I fell apart. I just fell apart in front of them. Uh, you know, I know this isn't what you're looking for to hear from me, but I felt like I would be remiss if I didn't say that you had never done this before. So how would you, like, I just, I, 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 I laid awake. I did, I did message you at night. And I think I might've known because of the time that the caring Brit that like, maybe she's up, but I remember laying awake thinking, um, how is she doing this? You know, so I appreciate the sensitive person you are and the smarty that you are that would even look over your shoulder hindsight. And I think that's just a testament to who you are that would be willing to say, Hey, I wish I'd done this better, but my goodness, this is, this is a, a road, not traveled, not less traveled, just not traveled for you. Um, in that, I know there's major markers, you know, in that you, so that was one right there. It had to be right. When he, you, yeah. cause I remember you writing about that and I'm like, Oh, whatever. I mean, we were, we meaning the collective praying folk that I knew from growing up years that were just, sometimes they knew I had an inside track because I was talking to the, I was talking to you on, you know, and so I would get emails and texts. What do you know? What do you know? But we were all holding our, our breath in prayer. When did you start feeling? uh, I see maybe things are going to maybe, when did the word maybe come back to you? So it was the second time I spoke to a doctor and this was probably four weeks in. And he said, we brought Brian out of the coma. They call it a sedation vacation. <laughs> they okay. can bring him up so that he can come to a little bit. And I said to Brian, squeeze my hand. And he said, he squeezed it with all of his might. 
and and he said he is in there and that was the time that was the first time anybody had said anything hopeful to me anything at all because his oxygen terry had gone down to 50 percent when your oxygen when your brain is deprived of oxygen at a rate of 50 percent yeah you usually don't come back from that brain wise right your cells are usually dead from that and so my other hope or my other fear besides him just dying was that he wouldn't die but he would not be with us cognitively and that he would just be on life support and not be able to function as a human being really so that doctor telling me, I told him, he followed all of my instructions. I told him to wiggle his toes. He did. I told him to grab my hand and he had strength. So right there was a miracle because all I had been told is that he's not going to make it. He's the sickest patient we have. Nobody's making it out of here right now. And um, so that was the time where I thought, maybe, maybe he's gonna be saved. Maybe he will live through this. I don't know how that look, but maybe he will live and maybe he will be able to, to talk to me and be a functioning person in our family again. And, and then, I, don't, I, I mean, I recall also you saying things like, e- even when you got around a corner and there was a, there was a moment of hope, then there were other concerns, other health concerns. Mm-hmm. What, like you're saying, like cognitively, that was a concern, but what else? There were so many things that could have really gone a very different way. And at what point um, in, you said that uh, early at the start of the interview that you, you when you waved goodbye to him and said, we love you, that really uh, that was the last time that you made a connection with him uh, for five weeks, what was the five week marker? What was that when? That's when he came off isolation. So that's not completely true because I was allowed in on that two and a half, three week mark for that one hour. Right. But but, but he wasn't really, you know what I mean? I get, I got why you, why you stated that. So, So one day I just get a call and you're right. Like he would have a really good day. You know, good is very, subjective, but he would have a good day. And then the nighttime, he would just crash and his numbers would go down or he would get agitated and pull out all his tubes. And um, he did that all the time. And that, that's, you know, that was life-threatening for him. At any time, if he pulled his ventilator off, he was not able to breathe on his own and his lungs could have collapsed and he could have suffocated. And um, there's a lot of other things that happen with those ventilators that they have to be cleared often. And if the nurses were with someone else, like there was, it was just so precarious. I was just going to say the, the word precarious. That's what it sounded yeah. like. All the time. And it was just a roller coaster. And I learned after a few days to not let myself get hopeful. Like he would have a good day and everyone would be like, yay, Karen, he's having a good day. Look at, look at what happened. And I would be, I would be just so unlike me, but I would be like, just wait, just wait. And then, you know, overnight 
he would he would crash or something would happen or he'd pull pull his tubes out or his oxygen would go way down and they would have to you know run in and do life-saving measures on him so it was just so up and down and I could not let myself go on that roller coaster so I just stayed in the in the down and so he had had a bad night and then this was on nearing October 1st I got a call from the hospital and anytime I saw the hospital on my phone my blood would just run cold every time I thought this could be the call that changes our life you know this could be the call like they didn't call me I called them so whenever they called me I was terrified and my hands would shake and um so I got one of those calls and the nurse Annie was, was saying Karen Brian's off isolation. And I was like, what? What 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 does that mean? He's off isolation. I was thinking, is that a is that a medication? <laughs> is it a tube? Is it a, what is it? What is isolation? I mean, not that I don't know what isolation is, but I hadn't heard, you know, that term used before. And she said, he is no longer, he no longer has COVID. You can come see him. And I, I mean, from that point on, I was there until every day until November 24th. That was the day that they were like, he is off isolation. You can come and see him. And so, that was a game changer. Um, meaning he wasn't, he, he wasn't, so he, he didn't have COVID, but he had all the damage that COVID, yes. he was he, that was all, so it wasn't just like no. he turned a corner. He just wasn't like contagious or could pass yes. it along or, okay. Right. Um, right. And you, I know, oh my gosh, I know, I know there were stories that you told and we can, first of all, I just want to say that we are going to bring Brian on. We just wanted to have time with you because you wrote these amazing Caring Bridges entries um, or the caring bridge. I'm not sure. I'm sure I'm hacking it up, but, um, and you did this diligently with, with, with probably nary a miss of uh, daily. Um, and there was quite a following of people that read these and visited. Can you, do you have a tally of how many people uh, have, have been taking this journey with you or did at some point? I don't know the unique numbers. I know that I've had about over 107,000 um, visits, but I'm sure that those are many of those are just the same people visiting daily. So I don't I don't really know. But we have had contact from people all over the world. I just got a message from somebody from East Africa that knew somebody that knew somebody. It, it's been. I always tell Brian, like, we're just normal people. You just got sick. Like, I don't understand the, I don't really understand. I don't feel like we're special. We're just fighting still. And yet people are continuing to walk with us. And I'm beyond, beyond grateful for that. I, I don't know how anyone would do this without a community, without people holding them up, because seriously, we could not hold ourselves up a lot of days, a lot of days. And my story is so much different than Brian's story. It will be very interesting to hear his part of it because for the really bad spots, he wasn't there. He True. was, you know, he, right. he didn't go through all that. He right. has gone through this 
physical, you know, we're trying to put him back together for all this time. But when it was touch and go, when he was on death's door, he, he was in a coma. So he has his own crazy, freaky stories of what was right. going on. But and you know, when you say on death's door, I know that's a, that's a, a, an old saying, but he really, he hung out right there at the threshold of there. death's door. And many they told me, we don't know if he will make it through the night. I numerous times. And so he, he really was there. They, I don't want to take too much from his story, but he could hear nurses saying, what has taken this guy so long to die? Because they, they just, well, well and, and they, they, they knew, right. They, they were seeing death every day and they knew the markers. The Everyone right. is dying. Right. Why isn't right. he dying? I, I, you know, I have to believe that it, it's a miracle. It's prayer. Um, nurses would come into his room after he was recovering and he was better. Um, he would just have visitors come into his room from the hospital like, you're, I just wanted to see you. I just wanted to see you. You're the survivor. You're the miracle. You're the one. You're the one. Like, you gave us hope. Like, this can actually be a positive outcome because they hadn't seen any he was the only one that came out of his pod alive oh karen the only For real the only one the only yep. one yep i don't know so I he has, has I, a I, purpose you have a purpose there is definitely worry but i just don't know what it is and you know as and and i i know as days unfold and we'll get to this when we bring Brian on and just so that my audience knows how we're going to work this Karen and I are going to come to a close here in a moment and then uh, we will have part two with Brian but I, I know you said you have your story he has his which is clearly true I mean he this is you know his life and how it affected him but then you have this story together as well um I am just um, so honored that because I know y'all are going to tell this story in ways that help so many people uh, the because we all proverbially have moments where we're hanging out, not like Brian at the threshold of death's door, but there's something that's, you know, threatening our lives and, and whether it's, um, health issues or a hopelessness or relationships or financial challenges, all the above. But um, what you guys have rallied went in and through and you still are, uh, you know, we said at the, uh, when you and I were discussing that you had wished that you could tell the story and come to a point of telling the story where you could look over your shoulder and say, see, that's the beginning. And then there was a middle and then it came to an end and now all better. Well, we're not, that's not the situation. Um, yeah. But what you wrap guys, it all up in a nice bow, a nice bow. <laughs> It's, but what you guys are doing, even in the middle of that, is I think the, I don't know, it's like a hero song, kind of like it's, I just sort of feel like there's a flag waving that's saying we're doing this and this is, 
some of the things that we are doing and how we're doing it. But I want to thank you. We'll be right back for the listening audience. Uh, you'll hear part two uh, next week, but I'm we're going to go into this next part of this interview, but I can't wait to do it. So uh, Karen, you sweetheart, there's more time to tell. I think there's a dovetail here that we can make between your story and his story when we get back together. But uh, tell my friend Brian to come on and um, we will we will make that connection so that he gets to share his part. But then I know there's stuff with the two of you together. I mean, what a team in a, in a, I don't know. It just almost feels like everything I'm saying could be very cliche. It's like you guys are living out every kind of cliche. We are living every cliche that there is. Like it all happens for a reason. <laughs> but it does, it does. And nobody escapes, you know, nobody escapes life's trials. Yeah. Nobody does. That's what I have learned in this is that we are by far not, not unique in this in this struggle. Well, girly, you're a doll. Thank you very much. Let's bring Hearing this to a close and, and go, go get him. And I'm going to bring this to a close and then we'll start up uh, another interview with him. Okay. Okay. All right. My love. Mm -hmm. I think I might have a little bit of frustration in that we can't really get in everything about Karen's story. But as we transition into bringing Brian into the story, we will just. Uh, try to buffer the that, um, close the gap a little bit. Uh, why, why would we want to tell this story? One, it deserves to be told. It's a, it, it's like a hero story. And there are so many heroes in this story, um, from the nurses and the doctors and, family members and friends that spread across the country and the world that have stood in the gap prayerfully for this family and for Brian's health. Uh, but I believe that when we share our story, there is an, an emotional connection as human beings that somehow resonates and connects and goes to the places that we might not otherwise ever immediately make access to unless we heard a story that had us pause for a moment and one in empathy and concern and and interest in another but also in the way that it directly affects our lives and perhaps shines a flashlight on the places that we have weathered through that maybe we're in right now and we don't see uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. I am really excited to continue to share the story next week, bringing Karen and Brian back in and hearing um, what just seems like the tip of the iceberg but what an encouraging, hope-filled perspective. But really, life is just challenging. And sometimes it comes in a life-threatening virus. And we know so many lost their lives to it. Sometimes it comes in a loss of a job. Sometimes it comes in being lonely. Sometimes it comes in a challenge with a personal addiction that you just can't run fast enough away from. 
but in taking time to share and to listen to one another. That has to be the start of applying a salve that we as humans can connect to and benefit from in our own struggles and woundedness as human beings. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Please be prepared to join us next week again to hear from Brian. You don't want to miss that. And we will stay together even beyond then as they have a way of wrapping things up. I love y'all. Bye. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.